Amen. Hey, let me just encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word. And if you have a Bible, you can get it. It's the only reason I'll allow you to move right now is just to turn like this to get your Bible, okay? That's it. No, we want to honor God's word. We don't do this as like some rote tradition. We want to say that we stand to honor God's word. That's the position God's word has over our hearts. It's an expression of that physically, but it's also an expression that, look at this, just look around for a second. This is what this church believes. God's word is worth standing for. Amen. So that's why we do it, and uh, we're going to come to 2 Samuel chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 11. This is the text that we'll be covering this morning. There's more than meets the eye here. There's more than meets the eye here. We'll see this. Verse 1 of chapter 2, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him and everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, hello and good morning to the Memorial Day faithful. It's good to see you guys. And it's pretty and the weather is nice. And we had like 100 degrees on Wednesday but how many are grateful for like the mid to low 80s? Thank you, God. What a gift. But even what a greater testimony to see the fact that like, hey, it's nice out there, but what's going on in here cannot be met anywhere else. You can't go out into nature and get the gathering of God's saints under the word of God in the church, period. You can't get it anywhere else. And so it's cool to testify to that, and I'm grateful we're together. And my name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church. And if you have not been with us before, we are so glad to have you. It is a joy to be able to worship with you together. I usually hang out in the lobby for the most part after services. I'll be out there today. If you want to say hi, connect, and you're ready to do that, I'm always ready to do that. So come say hi. Um, until then, though, we're going to get in God's Word. So Second Samuel is where we're going to be, which is like an Old Testament book, one of those books back then. And you know, what in the world could that old book say to us today, right? What in the world? Well, 2 Samuel chapter 2, here's the title of the message this morning, A Clash of Kingdoms. A Clash of Kingdoms. This is where you and I live smack dab in the middle of a clash between the kingdom of this world and the inaugurated kingdom of God, most evidently seen in the regenerative life, the regenerative life of the believer. 
We see evidences of the inaugurated kingdom of God in our world, but it is in a clash right now, and as long as sin remains, that will be the way it is. So it turns out nothing's really changed, even from 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2, what we begin to see is God's kingdom is established under divine guidance. But there is another kingdom that opposes God's kingdom that is established by human ambition. And what that shows us today is that people aren't just jumping at the opportunity to receive the kingdom of God because, listen to this, it clashes with the kingdom of self. As glorious as the call of the gospel is to come to Jesus, the reason we struggle is because if we are going to come to one king, it means another king has to lay down. And so if you're not aware of this in your life, this is precisely the issues that we walk through. This is what's in your marriage and in your struggles, a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. This is precisely what's going on in your relationship with the Lord and your struggles to get into the word and prayer with him, a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. If we're honest as Christians, we see our motives and our words and our actions. Let's just be, let's just, let's lay this out and say our best words, motives, and actions, if we were honest, are a mixed bag of my own self-glorifying inclinations and this desire to want to honor God all at the same time. You ever notice that? Like your best attempt, your most godly moment in some way is soured by, tainted by the kingdom of self building into that. And so we have these battles that are taking place every day, right? Am I going to choose self-righteousness, spending most of my time being an expert in other people's sin? Which is what we do naturally, by the way. We are awesome at seeing other people sin, but shockingly bad at humility seeing our own. If that's not an understanding of the kingdom of self battling against the kingdom of God in us, I don't know what is. Or you talk about it, another example would be self-reliance versus spirit dependence. Our tendency, especially as independent Americans, to rely on ourselves, we don't even see ourselves doing it, we just do it over and against an admission and an acknowledgement that you do not want to run life on your own and you want to depend on the Spirit of God for all of your ways. Or how about even in the idea of self-rule versus submission to God's Word? There's a desire in us to want to go our own way in our flesh, and yet there's also this conflicting work of the Spirit of God that's happening in the life of the Christian that goes, wait a minute, I'm done with self-rule, as hard as that is to overcome, but by God's grace, I want to walk in submission to God's Word. All of these are examples of this battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self that's taking place within us and therefore sets the framework to come into this text. And I just want to say, as we enter this text, I want you to be thankful that as we enter this Old Testament text, for us, as we look at it, we can give thanks because there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the true and better Davidic King, who in his death breaks the power of the kingdom of self over you. And in his resurrection guarantees that someday the clash of kingdoms that exist in you and exist in our world will come to an end and joyfully so for those who trust in Jesus Christ. So this opposition to God's kingdom that we are even a part of in our flesh will end, but it won't end until the return of the true and better Davidic king. So, big idea for this morning. <clears throat> big idea for this morning. Opposition to God's kingdom has and will continue until the return of the true and better Davidic king. And I want you to know that until then, until his return, the Lord himself, who is, our, who is interceding for us, battles zealously on our behalf in the midst of this clash of kingdoms and will not rest 
until the clash is over in us. Here's how the text breaks down today. You're going to notice if you want to look at the way. How does he get his outlines? How does he break this down? Well, it's actually broken down in the narrative by this reference to David being anointed the king of Judah. Okay? You see it in verse 4a. Anointed king, David king over the house of Judah. You see it in verse 7. The house of Judah anointed me king over them. And you see it in verse 11. David was king over the house of Judah for seven years and six months. And so those three references give us three vantage points to see this text. And that's how it's going to break down today. So 1 to 4a, 4b to 7, 8 to 11. Three references helping us understand opposition to God's kingdom has and will continue How are we to look at it? What are we to do with our time in the middle of it? Here are the points. Kingdom inauguration, kingdom invitation, and kingdom opposition. You'll get them all on the screen, and they will take their time. Just want to let you know this is where we're going. So let's see what happens as God's kingdom is inaugurated with David. Okay? So we start chapter 2 with David's inauguration, but it's really his ascension. I don't know if you noticed, but as we were reading, the, the verb go up, happens five times in the first three verses. Did you guys see that? So I'm calling it inauguration of his kingdom, but it's really an ascension to his throne. He's going up. Shall I go up into the city of David? Lord said, go up, to which David said, shall I go up? David went up. Do you see that? A lot of ups. And technically, geographically, from where David is to where David's going in Hebron would be up. But it's more than just a geographical issue. This is a positional issue. God has called him up to a higher position. And so what we find with David is something we find with the Davidic descendant who comes, Jesus Christ himself, who assumes the kingship. But watch how David does this. David's ascension is without presumption, or another way to say it is David's ascension is a humble ascension to the throne. And I'll I'll reference a verse because I think it's helpful. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Okay? Do you believe God for that? Listen, if God's got it for you, nothing can stop it, so humble yourself and entrust your way to him. That's what David does. There's no lack of clarity. We, we, some of y'all weren't here for 1 Samuel, but I'm, I'm going to do a lot of assuming now, okay? which means you got to go back and read it. He was already constituted as king. This had already taken place. This isn't David first coming onto the scene. God had already established this with David, and yet David, so it could be, okay, the what is clear. David, you're to be king. Well, now Saul's gone, so David could have taken it into his own hands, which is what we do so often, isn't it? Like, okay, God wants me in there. I must, I gotta get in there. Gotta make it happen. The American spirit in me. God plus America, let's make it happen. Right? That's what we do. We got to do it ourselves. And David shows us that's not the way to go forward. You trust the Lord in all of these ways. It's actually showing us the path that our Savior walked. He's modeling it in a lesser way, but in a similar way, a reminder that the path to exaltation in God's economy is always the path of humble obedience. Listen, it's always the path of humble obedience. Humble yourself that God may exalt you. Why does this matter? Because Saul didn't. Because David does, but David ultimately is not the perfect example of this. And because Jesus does this supremely, the path to exaltation is found in humble obedience. Isn't that what Philippians 2 says about the descendant of David? That he what? That he being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. David knew he was going to be king, but like his descendant who would come after him, the king Jesus, he knew it was not something for him to, to borrow the language of Philippians 2, to be seized or to be grasped in his own strength, the kingship. 
that he should take matters in his own hands. He knew that was not what was supposed to take place. And like his descendant after him, same idea. Now, did David have multiple times and opportunities to, to take things into his own hands? I mean, some of the funnier parts of 1 Samuel, like when the guys are relieving themselves and Saul's like in the area where, you know, in the cave. And it's like, we could kill him right now. We could kill him in the middle of the camp. David has an opportunity to shed blood about Abigail, who's showing up here, by the way. Do you remember that with her husband, Nabal, which means fool? He was totally a fool. David wanted to kill that fool, right? And Abigail holds him back from shedding blood, which would have drawn the whole kingship into question. This is David not ceasing, not taking matters into his own hand. This is David doing what a lot of parents hope graduates do according to the letters you're writing graduates right now. No doubt one of the favorite verses go to of graduation season is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Am I right? Come on. That's going to find its way onto a sweet note. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. They're like, we're going to college. Trust in the Lord with all my heart for the right frat to get into, am I right? I'm going to look at this later when I mature and have kids and we got to settle back down again. But the parent's like, dear God, please just let them read this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You, you with me? Because I could go back into some yearbooks. I'll pull them out. I'll drive away right now. We'll just extend the sermon. I will drive and get my yearbooks and I will come back. I'll get all the letters that moms wrote me. That's trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not, lean not, underlined on your own right? In all your ways, acknowledge. Maybe in caps, A-C-K-N-L-W-L-E-D-G-E. Acknowledge him and he will. Dear God, please. They're like, yeah, there's a hundred dollars in here and they're out of there, right? (laughs) It's exactly how it goes. But like that verse is awesome though, right? And so it's why we put it in there. And it's a word for us today that we're to acknowledge him in all of our ways. So, so let me give you an example of how that goes. Um, you and I, we acknowledge God in the big decisions, but there are things in your life right now that you interpret to be below needing God for. There are right now. God help us see those things that are below needing God for because if you are doing that, you're doing some self-interpretive stuff and you're, you're thinking, I don't need God for this and it's going, no, all all your ways. The one you don't interpret needing God for. Yes, that one. He, he wants you to bring it to him. Well, what, what if the what is clear? He will have clear direction. This is what he wants me to do. Well, then he wants you to be praying for how he wants you to get there. It's not just figuring out the what's in life. What college should I go to? What should I eat? What should I do? I want to know God's will for this and that and all this stuff. He's doing something in you and how he brings you to the place he wants you to be is all part of it as well. And he wants you to acknowledge him in all of these ways. In fact, that's what we're going to see as we get into his, this, this passage that there is an inquiring of David. There is a spiritual guidance set up for the kingship that he models, that is a model for us. We need to be seeking the guidance of the Lord in all our ways, including when we know the what, but we don't know the how. So let's look at this. That was all, that was all an intro. (laughs) After this, David inquired of the Lord. Just let that be what's said about you. It's like every time I'm with them, I talk to them, they just, go, they just take it to the Lord, everything. Like it would just be encouraging if when someone described your process of going about your life, it's like, there they go again. Why are they going to prayer again? David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said, go up. Okay, but there's a lot of cities. You got one for me in particular? He goes, yeah, go to Hebron. That's where I want you to go. And so we see David seeking true guidance is very, very simple. And there's a a mix of even like Christians, I'm hearing this, like wanting God's guidance and seeking it from like, I mean, this was just last week, angel cards, 
Didn't even know that was a thing. That's not like X-Men cards, by the way, or Pokemon or something like that, okay? Angel cards is like seeing a psychic and trying to help envision the future for yourself, which is kind of along the lines of tarot cards, which is kind of along the lines of palm readers, which is not our thing. Or even I'll hear Christians just talking about like, I don't even get into this, but like, what's your, yeah, what's your sign? Did someone say that? What's your sign? What's your sign? Because that tells me so much about you. No, no, it doesn't. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't precisely tell you anything about me. The horoscope thing is a problem too. It's like, well, I use the Bible, but I also know my sign. And because I'm a, I don't even know what I am. Am I a Leo? Does anyone know? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, August. Yeah, see, there you go. It's embarrassing. We all know this. You're like, August? Yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, Janet. We all know, of course. I can say that to Janet. She and I have been together. You've had this abuse for how many years now? You've sat second row since 2014. So good. So good. And yet, we know it, right? And and, and here's what I'm trying to say. Uh, Nothing has changed. If you're going, like, maybe you'll get a word from David, like, audibly. Um, Don't do that. You're not David. You have something better. You're inspired. You have this. You have the Spirit of God inside of you. Okay. So it's prayer and the Word, isn't it? Simple. He prays. God's Word is the response. He acts in faith. It's just prayer and the Word. How do I get divine guidance for my life? Prayer and the Word. Prayer and the Word. Prayer and the Word. Oh, and by the way, the Word. Okay. The word, by faith, you go forward. The spirit of God goes with you. That's what you need to know. And I should also add that Saul's a worthy case in understanding that inquiring of the Lord doesn't always go the way you want it to go. Saul, in 1 Samuel 28, was a king that inquired of the Lord and did not receive an answer. And rather than checking himself, he checked out a sidekick. And that didn't go well either. And so our tendency is we don't get an answer or we don't get an answer we like, or we don't get an answer fast enough, and so we resort to our own, again, our own means to try to figure this out. And I just want to say this, listen, if you are praying and seeking the Lord, and you don't receive an answer, check yourself before you go checking a psychic. All right? There's plenty of reasons. Perhaps the reason God's not answering your prayers, men, is because you're not treating your wives as the weaker vessel ought to be treated. Look at verse Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Perhaps the reason your prayers are not being answered is because you cherish iniquity in your heart, Psalm 66. Perhaps the reason your prayers are not being answered because you ask to spend them on selfish things, James 4, 3. Perhaps the way your prayers aren't being answered is because you reject the word of God, Proverbs 28. Let me get the verse, 28, verse 9. So there are reasons at times why God does not answer even when we inquire and so God help us turn inside and assess our own lives and confess it to the Lord submit ourselves to him. David had a life that was submitted to the Lord and he's inquiring and he says go to Hebron. Now what's the issue with Hebron? Why is that where the Lord of all places wants the kingdom to be? Well, We could get some basic understandings. Hebron is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It's the highest elevation, about 3,000 feet elevation, highest city in Judah, which you can see why that would be cool for God's king, right? Though it is nestled in Judah, which is an interesting place for God's king to establish his reign. But what I need you to understand, and if we knew our Bibles well, we would understand that this city is rich in covenantal memories. This is a city where we would do well to connect our covenantal dots. Hebron, to connect David, goes all the way back to Abraham, where the Abrahamic covenant was that God would bless the world, the nations through Abraham, but that Abraham would be given a land, right, That would be his perpetually. And where is he shown that land but in the town of Hebron? So it connects because later in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, not only is there going to be a blessing to the nations, but kings shall come from Abraham. 
And so there's this connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the King David. How? Through this place, this city that they meet. And then when you fast forward to start reading the New Testament, which is where you start reading when you don't know anything about the Bible, right? It's like, go to one of the Gospels. Well, if you open up Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it ties it all together when you're seeing this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That God is connecting the covenantal dots to showing that the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is going to come through the Davidic king, which is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who we have revealed to us in the New Testament. And so David responds, and he goes on that word to go to Hebron. He goes up, his two wives also, one wife too many. But Chris passed it on it last week. He didn't have to talk about it last week, so I get a pass today too. But you promised we would come back and help with that. So next time you're up, you will do that. And um, Okay. Cool. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. They're making a huge move, right? Full-on journey out of where they were, cutting ties with the Philistines, his little moment in there, I mean, this is a clean break. I'm not sure if the Philistines are overly concerned because there seems to be so much strife within the kingdom of Israel. I think they're okay with it, but nonetheless, they keep going. Everyone with his household, they lived in the towns of Hebron, and it says this, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And here's what you need to see. This is right here, Yahweh's chosen king ruling visibly on earth for those who have eyes to see. That's what this is. In the tucked away parts of Judah, it seems a little, if you were king, would this be how it goes? It's missing something, don't you think? Only over one tribe? Yahweh's king? One tribe? What's going on here? Listen, listen, listen. You gotta get over your preconceived notions about what God's kingdom's going to be or look like or you will miss it when the Davidic descendant comes and his kingdom is set up in a way that you don't understand. What did the Jews think was going to happen when Jesus showed up? Just one of the big ones. We know this from enough time. They thought he was going to establish this dominant kingdom that was going to rule and break free from Rome, right? They had this mentality. You and I have this mentality about what it's going to look like. Well, if it's God's king, it's going to have this and this and this and this. And here's what we have to understand. God's kingdom is wherever God's king is. And so it may not look the way we think it ought to look. But if we funnel that through our own thinking, what will happen is we will miss David's descendant just like this seems low-key here with David. Because when David's descendant comes, his kingdom starts small and insignificant, does it not? In fact, that's one of the things that Jesus compares the kingdom of God to like a mustard seed present in a tiny, insignificant way, but don't let that fact obscure that where Jesus is, the kingdom is. And where Jesus reigns from is what he reigns over, and he reigns from the right hand of God, so guess what? He reigns over all. And here's what you need to understand. We kind of live in a Hebron stage of seeing the ruling and reigning of Jesus, which can be very discouraging at times. If you're in ministry, you see it as well because you're on the front lines and there's so much ministry that you're pouring out and you see so little of what God's actually doing. It's gracious of God to show us even just little glimpses of what he's doing. But what we can't forget is that Jesus Christ wasn't being flippant when he said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations. The kingdom of God will advance precisely because he is king ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And we have to hold on to that in a time right now where it seems like the kingdom of darkness is winning just by its dominance. 
just by the fact that 11 of the 12 tribes are not involved in this crowning of the true Davidic king, the true king of Yahweh. So Lord, help us to be encouraged that it may not look like you reign over all, but because you do and you've made it clear in your death and resurrection that your kingdom will advance. And then this, there's the kingdom invitation that comes. The second transition is this kingdom invitation and David gets this word. He gets this word from the men of Jabesh Gilead and this gets us back again to why knowing 1 Samuel 31 is so important because there's kind of this epic, I don't know what you would call it, like, um, like a mission that these guys went on to recover the bodies of Saul and Jonathan. Do you remember where they were left? They were nailed to the wall of Bethshan. The Philistines had put them up basically as trophies, and these guys sneak over at night, the Jabesh Gileadites, go on this, I think it's like a 20-mile round-trip expedition to go pull Saul's body and Jonathan's body at the risk of their own lives off of the wall and give them a proper burial, which by the way, I, I just as I was reading that, just heard echoes of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and the boldness that they had to walk up to Pontius Pilate so that they could take the nailed body of the Savior off the tree and give him a proper, you guys see where I'm going on that? That's just free. I, that's just, I, I, I'm hearing those echoes. Do you hear the echoes? It's kind of awesome. And so they go and they're successful and they bring the bodies back of Saul and Jonathan and they give them a proper burial and David hears of this and David makes this pitch, this compelling, pleasing pitch to the men of Jabesh Gilead. And, and I will have you note that his pitch is to come, be the first in the northern kingdom to come under my rule as Yahweh's king. And I want you to note a couple things that I think are interesting about the timing of the appeal. One, the, the, the invitation comes at a moment where their attention could be piqued. Death tends to do that when you're inviting someone to the kingdom and their life has been flipped upside down because the Lord's anointed whom they had served, whom they had joined together to try to kill David, right? Right? So these are not friends of David. These are enemies. It's good to note that. David comes and gives them an invitation to join him graciously at a moment where because of death happening to Saul and to Jonathan, there would perhaps be an openness to reconsider. Does this sound familiar? at a moment when the kingdom that they had held to was teetering more than it had teetered ever before. And so David starts in with this blessing. He says to the men of Jabesh Gilead in verse five, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Let's not forget that this is David he had every reason to regard the Jabesh Gileadites as his enemy, and instead he's looking to bless them even more. He's using the language, God, I want you to show them your covenantal love to these people, my enemies. For what they have done in being bold to go rescue and properly bury Saul's body, I want you to give them, show them your covenantal love and faithfulness. By the way, that covenantal love is that, that covenant God love that he gives to his people. I want you to do that for them, God. And he connects it to a bold proposal of his own. And he says, and I will do good to you. Or it's the idea of, I want to establish a treaty of friendship with you, my former enemies. I want to do good to you because you have done this thing. And then in his bold proposal, he's basically asking for a bold response. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them.
He's going, you've been bold before. Do you remember when you took that mission at the risk of your lives and you pulled the bodies off? Now I'm asking you to take another risk. I'm asking you to come with me. I'm asking you to come under my kingship. I am Yahweh's king. I'm asking you to be transferred out of the kingdom of the north and come under the kingdom of Yahweh. And he does it in such a rightly so winsome way, gracious way, pleasing way, perhaps echoed and only exceeded by the Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant of David in his own moment when he speaks to the people of Israel in Matthew 11 and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He's, he's calling for a kingdom transfer. And here's what he doesn't apologize for. Jesus Christ does not apologize for being king of all. He says, take my yoke upon you. You're going to come to Jesus. It is an amazing invitation. And he's so gracious in his extension of it. Come to me. But when you come to me, understand this, you are taking my yoke upon you. Now, if you understand the yoke of Jesus, you know that the yoke of Jesus is actually a blessing. It's really a non-yoke in a sense because of the glorious reality of finally the right king is over you. But he says, take my yoke upon you. And here's how he woos the people. He woos the people by his person and by his promises. He says, take my yoke upon you for I am gentle and lowly in heart his person. And I will give rest to your souls. That's his promise. This is what it means to come into the kingdom of Yahweh's king, a winsome proposal to once enemies, now invited in as friends. And I think about this week, and I think about what's gone on this week, and it just was another crazy week, wasn't it? Heartbreaking week. And I think about so many people on Twitter were saying, just come, Lord Jesus, come, right? Is that not the refrain of our hearts? Dear God, please make it right. I'm good right now. Anyone just good right now if Jesus wants to come back? Like, if he wanted to end the sermon eight minutes early, it would set a record here, but we would be okay <laughs> with that. Right? We've never ended. We would never have ended that early. But everyone would be okay with it if Jesus came back, right? That would be awesome. Six people are excited about Jesus returning. Seven. Eight. It's just like, can he hear this? Can he hear this? And it's almost heartbreaking that he doesn't, right? Because this stuff continues to happen. These shootings at schools. Did you, did you look? You probably, some of us can't even look. You can't even look at the pictures because it's so heartbreaking. Did you look? I, I looked. I looked at those kids. I just, how can you not cry? Just immediately seeing their faces. It's heartbreaking what happened this week. But one of the things we have to remember as Christians is as heartbreaking as this week was, we have to get it into our heads. Have to, have to, have to. And this could almost sound offensive. That the pain and sorrow of this week pales in comparison to one soul facing the eternal conscious torment of hell for eternity. And that is the pathway that every unbeliever is choosing for themselves and is on a beeline towards right now. And it should cause our hearts to shudder. Most of us, we don't even want to look at the news of what happened in Texas this week, let alone thinking about the reality of someone dying and spending eternity of their own desires being given over to them unto their, I don't want you to reign over me, God. Because here's the reality, when he returns, it's done, but today is the day of salvation. So why does he not return is the question, right? Why does he not come back now? And it's because he's still reconciling enemies to himself. That's what he's doing. 
He is still reconciling enemies, those who do not deserve it. God is sending out gospel preachers to testify to the good news about Jesus that more might come into his kingdom. Where you spend eternity, here's the invitation. David's got an invitation, here's my invitation. Where you spend eternity depends solely on what you do with King Jesus, period. He's welcoming, he's calling, he's saying, come to him. But this is not a casual, Jesus is my homeboy, we're cool, I accepted Christ kind of thing. As I said in the Gospel Is series, it's not whether or not you've accepted Christ, it's whether or not you have the confidence to know that Christ, that God in Christ has accepted you. Now how do you know that? Let's just be real clear. Have you been born again? Jesus' command is you must be born again. That makes the decision to follow Jesus not merely a decision of man, but the gift of God. Because the evidence of someone who has been born again is repenting and joyfully embracing, coming after. He says, come, you go. You embrace Jesus as the Lord King, Savior, Christ, the God-man who pours out his covenantal love towards you, how in the cross where he suffers and dies in your place for your sin and is in his resurrection triumphing over the grave and because of his perfect life lived on our behalf, by faith in Jesus Christ, we have all of our sins forgiven. We become reconciled to God in a way that we never could have been on our own. We abandon all efforts, all self-will, all self-trying to get there on our own, and we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And here's the reality. Today is the day of salvation because every person who has ever died up to this moment, their eternities are set, and there's, it's set, it's done. But by God's grace, God's sheer grace, your eternity isn't set yet. Are you prepared? Death is God's megaphone to get our attention. It was God's megaphone to Saul's people when Saul died to get our attention. And it's a megaphone to us in our day when we see these things happening to get our attention. Death is coming for all. You don't determine when. And when you die, eternity in that moment will be set for you, either everlasting joy or everlasting judgment. And Jesus is the only way to joy and life in the kingdom. And he's calling and he's gentle and he's lowly in heart. You hesitate because of your sin and he says, come with your sin. Come with your brokenness, your baggage, your junk, your stuff and come to me and I'll give you rest. And when rest gets in, it'll work itself out. You don't go get rest and then come to Jesus. You come to him for rest and he'll work the rest of it out. Who knew you'd have some stuff in common with the Jabesh Gileadites? See, because you're not the king of the kingdom, but you're the outpost messengers of the kingdom of God going into the world. And your life is spent amongst Jabesh Gileadites who need to be called out of a kingdom into another kingdom. This is your role. This is the world you live in. You find yourself smack dab in the midst of a bunch of neighbors, friends, coworkers who need to, you need to see them as if they were an extension of the Jabesh Gileadites. Fighting to resist the kingdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and holding fast to the kingdom of self and you need to call them and tell them, it, you, you saying, you're okay, I'll, I'm just gonna be a good person, you need to tell them that won't work. Because God gets to define good and we fall woefully short of being a good person. You need Jesus. And your testimony when you stand before God has nothing to do with you. It's you know, you have confidence, you are accepted by God because you are in Christ by faith. This we have to declare and we have to preach and the invitation has to go out. And we call them to respond. And just like with the Jabesh Gileadites, 
We need to call the people we preach the gospel to to count the cost that it will take in following Jesus. It is glorious to give up everything, but it's not glorious until God opens your eyes to the reality of I get to give, give up everything for the sake of following after and knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. This is what we must do. While there's still time, let's be the ones who bring the kingdom invitation. And then this, what do we, what do we find out? What was the response of the Jabesh Gileadites. What do we know about them? Well, we actually don't find out what their response is to David's invitation. Instead, what happens is there's a flip of the script and we get this other scene and it's the last part. It's the kingdom opposition. And instead, we're introduced to this rebellion that takes place against Yahweh's king that Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Here's the thing. We find out literally one chapter later in 2 Samuel 3, 9, and 10 that it was crystal clear. First of all, it was already crystal clear that God had established David as the king. It was clear largely far and wide, like they are without excuse. And yet Abner, knowing that Yahweh had sworn the kingship to David, chooses to go forward with a rogue kingdom anyway. And I just want to say that this response in verse 8 is so close to home in the heart of a sinner because to know God's will and to choose to rebel against God's will is a very serious sin because to oppose God's king is to oppose God. To oppose Yahweh's king is to oppose Yahweh and that is precisely what Abner is setting up. Now it's interesting because you're like, wait, he put a king over him. Yeah, but let's just be honest. This is like a paper king. Ish-bosheth is set up there so that Abner can basically run the show through this guy. That's 100% what it is. So you don't think the kingdom of self is reigning? Hey, listen, we can put facades over the kingdom of self all day long. No, 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 it's someone else there and I'm deferring. And it's like, no, 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 you're controlling everything from right behind that person. Ish-bosheth literally means man of shame. Set up by Abner to be king, and it sounds bad. It sounds discouraging. He's going to be king over the whole, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. But here's the thing you need to be asking yourself today. Why in the world, if he's going to be king over the 11 tribes, would he be crowned east of the Jordan River? Why in the world are they setting him up to be crowned in Maha Naim? Listen, you don't set up a king to be crowned east of the Jordan, in the Transjordan, unless you had an understanding that the kingdom wasn't as stable as you thought it was. Unless there was some sort of teetering and tottering, this facade of it's all, we're all good, everything's good here. But hey, we'll just, we'll crown them over here. So there's not a bunch of, well, we don't hear, but here's what we do here. Here's what we know. We know that the kingdom seems to be more shaky than it appears. By the way, is that not an encouragement that the kingdom of darkness is more shaky than it appears? Just remember that. It looks like it's like dominating and it is shaking. It is teetering in favor of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's just remember that. Okay? Always remember that. Keep that perspective as it's playing out because here's what we do find out. Um, I don't need to make this up not like I'm making a lot of stuff up. <laughs> Ish-bosheth, look at this. He, he, he began to reign over Israel. He reigned two years. But in verse 11, it says, the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay, I went to public school, but two years and seven years and a half are not equal to each other. Though maybe now, if you felt like it was, you could say that. Okay. right? Two, seven and a half. You get it, right? If it was all good, everything was dandy, you would think that would get changed. 
you would think it would match up with the rule of David. We don't know why exactly. Does he come in at the end? Did it take him five-ish years to get into that place of kingship? We don't know. It doesn't say. But what we do know is something is going on. Do you smell it? It looks tough. It looks like it's dominant. It looks like it's ruling and reigning over all. It looks like it's going to have the final say, and yet in the end, it's not going to have the final say. This is what we need to understand. This is what will not change. Yes, the epitome of the sinner's response is Luke 19, 14. We don't want this man reigning over us, and that seems like the predominant part of our society. And it seems like the kingdom of God is losing, but let me just encourage you with this. Let me, and, and this, by the way, this would never get onto a Christian t-shirt. It would never get onto a Christian mug. And yet Jesus himself said it. We love verses that are so nice and fluffy and friendly. And, and there's, there's good stuff about that. But isn't it true like after weeks like this, hell makes the most sense after weeks like this? Because you're, you're, you're thinking to yourself, there's got to be a judgment that matches the level of wickedness that just took place. Like, we struggle because we don't understand how great God is to understand why even any sin deserves eternal judgment because of the one it's against. But it's these weeks that we can even go, yet I could understand that. Well, well listen what happens at the end of the age. I'm going to leave us with this. Matthew 13, 41 to 43. This is Jesus, by the way. Not the feather-haired Jesus. Okay? Here's what it says. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then... The righteousness, the, the, excuse me, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. You believe in this Jesus? This is the one that's returning. This is the one that's gonna cast out darkness. This is the one who's gonna triumph over the kingdom of darkness. And I will just say this, you're, you're in one or t- of two kingdoms. You're either in the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ or you're in the kingdom of darkness, period. Kingdom of self. This is the kingdom where judgment's gonna happen. This is the kingdom where joy's gonna pour out. You go, I'm neutral, I'm not religious. You're right here. You are right here. There is no neutrality. You are either for Jesus Christ who welcomes you graciously or you stand opposed to him and have only yourself and your sin to blame. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that you would draw, not just convict sinners, but draw them to yourself. God, that you would do a work that only you can do. Father, you're so gracious in your son Jesus to welcome us with an unbelievable love that you will never let go of us, that you will hold firm and fast to us, God. And I pray that you would draw sinners to yourself as every one of us who are Christian in here today know that time in our lives where we were drawn to you. God, make that clear to those who need it today, that they might turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And Father, I also pray for Christians that are discouraged, working hard, serving Jesus, that this time feels like overwhelming, that the darkness is getting a hold. But Lord, there is a remnant you have preserved and you continue to preserve and you will preserve until the end when the return of Jesus, he will make all things right and he will cast out all lawbreakers and sentence them to judgment. And then the righteous will shine like the sun. God, give us an eternal perspective that we might walk forward faithfully because we have the message of the hope of the kingdom of God in the gospel. May these last days be used to draw more enemies to you as friends. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.